Thank you. Yeah, let's hear it. That's awesome. Well, greetings from Biola University, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Um, I love teaching college students, and I would never minimize the problems that college students go through. But to speak to adults, to speak to people who have gone through life and have experienced hardship, have experienced trials, and marriage is something we all signed up for, but we probably didn't anticipate the struggles. We probably didn't anticipate all the twists and turns that have happened, and, and if we went around this room and just asked what's happening in your life, I suspect it would blow us away, the issues that are being dealt with just in this room. My wife and I have been married for 32 years. Uh, I had hair when this all started. Um, and we've been speaking for family life marriage conferences, this is crazy to say, for 28 of those years. Uh, when they asked us to speak, we didn't know anything. We kind of we knew everything because we didn't know anything. You know what I mean? And so watching this unfold and then having the privilege of teaching at a university that has a center for marriage, you get to see big trends is what happens, right? We take a look at Pew Research, the work of John Gottman. We're going to consider uh, these next four talks. And there are trends that are happening within the church that I think we just need to talk about and address. It is interesting how much culture has stepped into the church, that we start to adopt the principles and values of the world. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give my observation of some course corrections that we need to make as Christians as we try to do this thing called marriage. Now, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. He's probably my favorite author. So I want to start with a C.S. Lewis quote. Lewis said, life is made up of first things and second things. Get the first things in place, Lewis said. The second things will follow. Now, let me give you my quick interpretation of what Lewis meant. How many of you in your family of origin, you're the youngest? Raise your hand. How many of you just have older brothers? Raise your hand. Okay, that's me. I'm the youngest. I just have older brothers, two older brothers. When you're the youngest and you just have older brothers, you're the test dummy of life. <laughs> Right? Your brothers think of things for you to do, and you're it. You're the youngest. You're going to do these things. My middle brother, uh, Ken, came home one day. He had bought some fake blood in a bottle, vampire blood. What toy manufacturer thought it was a good idea to have fake blood in a bottle? So Ken literally grabbed me. We go to the back bedroom. He said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to take the dresser. I'm going to lean it back. I'm going to shove it against the wall. It's going to make a really loud noise. You lay on the ground with blood coming out of your ears, your nose, your eyes. Mom will come in. This will be really funny. Okay? Now that I'm a parent... This is a 911 nightmare, okay? So my brother Ken does it, makes a huge noise. I'm laying on the ground. He's totally overdone it. I'm saturated in blood. My mom comes in, she's like, damn, damn. I go, mom, look, it's fake. And my timid mother was like, I'll give you fake, you know? And I'm like, Ken got on a bus, left. We didn't see him for a year. I'm, I could tell you story after story about the male hot boys. East Detroit, we had this huge oblong pool in the backyard. My mom said, no more swimming for the day, so we're throwing the Frisbee across the pool. The Frisbee hits the water, it sinks. We grab these poles, not realizing they're jagged at the edges, and we are trying to get the Frisbee ripping the liner. 
Just as my dad comes home from General Motors working a double shift, the pool collapses. We flooded three backyards. My dad is walking up the drive. Water is rushing. Small animals are going past him. He walks in the backyard. I couldn't even let go of the pole. I was like, he sat us down. I'll never forget what he said to me and my three brothers. He said, listen, come August 11th, you're all going to do something. This isn't a conversation. You're going to do it. August 11th, you're all going out for football because I'm going to knock the goofy out of each one of you. Okay? So we did, me and my three brothers, we did wind sprints in the backyard. We watched what we ate. Uh, we would do push-ups. My brother Bob played college football for one year at Fair State. Um, we did everything, right? Football became the first thing. Sleeping, exercise, eating became second things. What Lewis is trying to say is, what's the first thing in your life? What's the first thing? Well, we know that it's God, but what's the expression of our devotion to God? One thing that I think we're missing today is we're not putting marriage in its context. If we were to go outside and just do a random survey and just grab people and say, what's the purpose of marriage today? The average American answer would be, without a doubt, it's my fulfillment. It's why I get married, and maybe because I want to have a family because I don't want to be alone, and maybe I want to leave a legacy. There is nothing wrong with any of those. It's just not the reason God created marriage. That's not why he created marriage. I mean, it is really interesting to think, why did God do this? We know that God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly content, perfectly happy. The trinity never has a bad day. Trinity is never lonely. Yet God creates human beings. Why? Because he wants to experience and have a relationship with us, right? He wants to do things with us. So then he says, I'm going to create a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, and this is going to be a form of worship. And that's what I want to suggest today. Our first talk is that what primarily marriage is, is not your happiness. See, happiness is a derivative. As Americans, we've kind of forgotten that. If you go directly at happiness, you're going to miss it. Happiness happens when it's a derivative. You're doing something else, and happiness is a byproduct. I would say most Americans would not buy that. They would say, no, 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 happiness is what drives me, and that's what gives me meaning. God says, no, 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 it's a derivative. Why else could James say, consider it pure joy when you encounter difficulties? See, most Americans couldn't say that. So I want to make an argument that your marriage primarily is, is uh, a form of worship. Oop, 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 oop. There we go. Uh, what am I doing wrong? I'm sorry. Oh, did it go? Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I want to, we first have to define worship, right? It's so funny when they put a conference monitor back there. In most churches, it's back there somewhere. My younger days, I could read that. Now I'm like praying for an interpretation of, you know what I mean? Like, wow, Lord. Okay, so I'm going to turn here, and I'm going, to, I'm going to look at this. First, let's define worship. We get a lot of different definitions, right? The Westminster Catechism. We could say worship is the praise and exaltation of God. Uh, worship is to ascribe to God the worth of which he is worthy. I like the last one the best. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. So I love what we just did, absolutely singing praises to God as a form of worship, but God also wants us to worship him in our hearts and in concrete actions. 
So what the writer of Hebrews does is he gives us a list. I love the fact that worship is active, not passive. And he gives us a list of things to do that we can worship God by doing this list. Right smack dab in the middle, he puts marriage. But understand, marriage is about all the things that the writer of Hebrews is about to mention. So let's consider the checklist that he offers. There we go. Uh, he first gives us a definition in chapter 12. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Working with college students, I think we're missing this one. I don't think we have much reverence and awe for God. I don't think we are bowled over by God the way individuals in the Old Testament were, right? What did Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Uh, and being in California, we really see this, right? People kind of go to church. Am I going to go to the beach or church? Probably both. And that's how I go to church. We don't have holy sanctuaries, right? If you go to Europe, you walk into a church, you wouldn't dare, right, uh, shout in a church like that. You're just appropriately hushed. We need to have reverence for God. And so the writer of Hebrews is about to say how that reverence is expressed and is going to give us some different things to think about. Um, there we go, ways to worship. Um, love fellow believers. Love them. Don't have to agree with them, but love them, right? Uh, keep on loving each other as brothers. Again, in family relationships, we have disagreements and we push through it. In addition to being a professor of communication at Biola University, I'm the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. This is a five-year project that is trying to reintroduce civility, compassion, understanding among Christians and non-Christians, but lately it's been among Christians. I mean, my goodness, the election did a number on us. Uh, COVID did a number on us, right? And, and churches are blowing up. They're literally separating over a host of issues. It could be race, it could be politics, and uh, we are not loving each other as brothers. We just had on our podcast, the Winsome Conviction podcast, Arthur Brooks, a Harvard researcher, and he said, here's the biggest difference today. If I'm angry at you, um, I want to protect the relationship, but I want to voice my displeasure, right? We disagree bitterly about this, and I'm actually upset with you, but I want to protect the relationship. Uh, Arthur Brooks says what hap has happened today among Americans is contempt. And contempt means I'm mad at you, and I don't care about the relationship. Right? I'll blow that thing up in a heartbeat. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, I know you're going to have disagreements, but keep on steadfastly loving each other as brothers and sisters, not as combatants with each other. Now, it's interesting the word that he uses, right? Keep on. We get the English word uh, memento from this. Uh, my wife and I went to Pearl Harbor, right, and took a look at the unbelievable, if we can go to the next slide, thank you, uh, the unbelievable monument to the brave men and women that lost their lives that day. I mean, when you stand there and you look at that submerged ship, that's a powerful moment. What a memento to the bravery of our soldiers. Guess what God says? I don't want a physical monument. You're my monument. 
When people watch how we love each other, that is the greatest testimony to God's existence. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'll tell you how people will know I'm God is the love that we have for each other. So part of being a follower of Christ is that we stick with each other. We don't separate. We love each other past our differences, and we come together because we understand that we were created to worship, and worship is expressed when we all come together with different political leanings, with different racial leanings. We all come together. We set that aside for the cause of Christ. Wow, one amen. That was... Slightly disappointing. No, thank you. But thank you so much for that. Right? Then he says, do not forget strangers. Right? We're not self-centered. We don't just love each other. Right? We actually look out for strangers. We look out for people that we don't necessarily know, but we see that there's a need of some kind. So our churches band together and we say, hey, let's go uh, and help people that we won't necessarily get anything from are helping them. Now, interesting what the writer of Hebrews says. In doing that, you have entertained angels and you didn't even know it. You have entertained angelic beings and because you were helping what you thought was a stranger, you actually are participating in this spiritual warfare that the Bible says is happening. The last talk I'm going to give is on spiritual warfare. Listen, 25% of everything Jesus said had to do with spiritual battle. Every New Testament writer writes about it. The Bible begins in spiritual battle in the garden. It ends in spiritual battle in the book of Revelation. Yet we don't talk about it. When I ask my Biola students, I give them a survey. I, was, I wrote a book on spiritual battle called Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of a Spiritual Battle. And again, my books are back there. Please hear me when I say we, we don't make money off these books. If, if we did, I'd have a hairpiece. Okay, can I just be honest with you? Okay, so if you find these talks interesting and you want to get more information, I, I brought some of the books I have, and they're just back there. Please, if you care about my kids, buy them. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> But we need to talk about spiritual battle. So when the writer of Hebrews is saying you entertained angels, understand there's a spiritual battle context to that. There's a war being waged. And when we help strangers, we really do push back Satan. So we'll talk, we'll talk more about that our very last talk. Um, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are mistreated. Right? We care about what's happening in the world. We're not self-centered American Christians. Right? God's kingdom doesn't revolve around the American church. Now, the American church has great resources. And we need to constantly be asking what's happening in the world and how can we use our resources to help people who are going through very difficult times. My wife and I lived overseas in Lithuania for a year, and you better believe Christians in Lithuania, Christians in uh, the former Soviet Union, they pay dearly for their faith. So we are to always think about people that are suffering for their faith and we are to reach out to them. Remember, happiness in your marriage is derivative. As you're caring for strangers, as you're caring for persecuted Christians, as a couple and as a family, guess what you're gonna experience? Happiness. You're gonna say, wow, we're not arguing as much as we used to. Or, or we're not just focusing on the Mielhoff family, we're focusing on what's happening. So when things happen in the world, we would periodically stop the TV 
See, and please don't think our kids were like, what a wonderful teachable moment. <laughs> it is so great living with Plato, right? Oh my goodness, no, no, they were always like, <sighs> right? So when something happens in the world and you see that red cross, right, 1-800, and you, you can give to the red cross, we would every once in a while say, okay, kids, here's what's gonna happen. Whatever you give, we'll triple it. Then you see the personality of your kids. Right? One of your kids comes down with everything that child has. Your other child comes with a crumpled $1 bill. And you're like, the people of Ukraine, thank you. Right? Right? You know what I mean? But we are to remember strangers, and we are to remember people that are being persecuted by their faith as a family and as a marriage. And again, I just put voices of martyrs. If you just go to their website, you'll see what's happening in the world, and it will shock you how much Christians are being persecuted throughout this entire world. Then he puts in marriage. I love that it wasn't first. He stuck it right in there as one of the ways that we worship. One of the things we do that becomes God's monument is we think about our marriages. And this is what he says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, just for a second, let's look at honored by all. See, God is spirit. God is actually in this room. There's not a part of the world or the part of the universe that God is not. In the book of Acts, it says, in him we live and move and exist and have our being. But the problem is God is spirit. So how do you interact with spirit? How do you know what God is like? Well, God says, I'm going to take uh, human beings, and I'm going to give you a living metaphor of what the Trinity is like. And that's what the ancient church always believed marriage was. You had the husband, the wife, and the love that ex existed between them. So when people look at your marriage, they should see something of God's love. When they look at your marriage, they should see something of Jesus's never-ending love for the human race. Now, everybody take a deep breath, because how are you doing in that, right? I used to teach a Sunday school class, so we couldn't be late, right? But we were always late. When Satan wants to go after the Mealha family, what does he do? He hides shoes. That's what he does. So I'm in the minivan. I desperately want to lay on the horn, but I know not to do that because we're going to be late, and I cannot be late. We're going to be late, but I cannot be late because I teach a Sunday school class. So I roll down the window, and I, I say, Jason, get in the van. Jason's like, I can only find one shoe. I'm like, get a saddle and a boot. Get in the van. There's our non-Christian neighbor. And I look at him, and I go, <laughs> We're going to church. <laughs> it's not working. We're going. Right? But in a weird kind of way, that works. In a weird kind of way, they see how messed up are the mule-offs. But they're working it out. That's what they're doing. And God's uh, purpose for your marriage is that marriage would be esteemed everywhere. And men and women, let me tell you something. Marriage is not esteemed today. Today, we're having one big, great social debate what the nature of marriage is. That is up for grabs. And in the academy today, marriage can be whatever you want it to be. It can be one person. It can be three. They call it a throuple. But gender can be whatever you want it to be. Marriage, and it's all up for debate. 
God wants to be part of that debate. He wants to be in it, and one of the ways he does that is he uses your marriage to show people not what a perfect marriage looks like, but a marriage that is working according to God's design, rooted in grace, rooted in love, imperfect, but we're hanging in there with each other. We're not giving up on this marriage. We're in it together, right? Because, uh, and again, I want to be very sensitive to the people in this room, right? Hey, this is not the weekend to regret, Okay, so if you're on a second marriage, third marriage, God wants to take where you're at and he wants to move forward, right? And he wants to take this marriage with all of your problems, our problems, and he said that's what Jesus' love is like. Jesus' love doesn't get exhausted. He works through all of those issues. And so that's what Noreen and I have to understand is that people are watching us in Brea. They think I'm a pastor, because I've been an interim teaching pastor in two different places. They think I'm a pastor. We're not, we're not a pa- I'm not a pastor, okay? But they watch us. Like one time we were having dinner, and uh, I, I don't even know what we were saying to each other. But we finish, we're about to finish, a couple walks up. Says, hey, we were at a family life marriage conference. And we're just kind of watching you during dinner. And thank you for your ministry. We walk away and I go, why did I not hold her hand across the table? But that's what God wants to do. When they look at your marriage, what do they see? They don't need to see perfection, but they see a love that does not forsake each other. Then he gets kind of personal. Next slide. Thank you. Marriage should be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Okay, let's do adultery first. What is adultery at its essence? At its essence, it means the marriage is not the primary thing anymore. So we we tend to think of adultery as with another person, okay? But Scripture has a bit of a bigger picture than that. Adultery can be anything that replaces that marriage, anything that can become my primary way of getting satisfaction is no longer my spouse, is no longer marriage. It has been replaced. Now, that can be replaced by a million things. It can be replaced by a career, Right? It can be replaced by uh, materialism. Uh, it can be replaced by um, golf. Right? So I, my son just, so all my kids golf. I, I do not. I was a wrestler, okay, in high school. Jason, our, our son home, is visiting. He said, Dad, let's go play 18 holes. Okay? So I'm out there and I, I'm terrible, but I hit one shot that is like amazing. And I literally hear Satan whisper in my ear, you can do this, right? You know what I mean? So it can be anything, anything that becomes the first thing in my life. We know that God's the ultimate first thing, but I'm here to say, I think if I'm interpreting the scripture correctly, marriage is right there, right? Here's what happens, and can I just say this uh, as gently as possible? In America, the biggest affair is not a romantic affair. What we have seen, it's a family affair. It's a family affair, right? The family, the kids become the most important thing and the relationship really suffers. Like people come to a family life marriage conference and will say things to us like, this is the first time in seven years we've been alone without the kids. Now listen, there's something good about that, right? But I look at that couple and say, listen, you need to be more selfish. Because, again, 
what we know, what we know from attachment theory is the kids look at you and take their cues off of you. If mom and dad are doing fine, if they're growing, if they're intimate, the kids will be fine, right? But when they perceive um, inordinate power that, hey, we're the ones who run this marriage, like, like you know, um, taekwondo, soccer, it doesn't matter. That's what runs the whole family. And mom and dad never have time with each other. Guys, I so applaud you for being here. You just did the greatest thing for your kids, right? Because they where's mom and dad go? I remember when the kids were young, we were going on a date, and they were like, where are you guys going? I'm going on a date. What's a date? I said, a date is not you. <laughs> that is a date. So you need to be a little selfish. You need to, now listen, if money's an issue, and it is for all of us, man, send the kids upstairs. Send them upstairs and say, watch something on YouTube. Watch do not come down for 45 minutes unless you've seen Jesus bodily. Do not come down for 45 minutes. Then make a pot of coffee and sit and just connect. John Gottman, we're going to talk a lot about John Gottman. He's the top marriage researcher in the entire world. Um, he says this, it is that five minutes of connection that a couple can do every single day that will really set the tenor, the tone of the entire marriage. So men and women, I think this weekend, I love, I love what was said about let's walk around the lake. Noreen nudged me, and she said, we need, let's go for a walk. I'm like, honey, I'm the speaker. Right now, yes, we're going for a walk. We are going for a walk. Right? Adultery is anything that replaces your spouse. I get my primary fulfillment from X, Y, and Z, and my spouse gets leftovers. Right? And maybe this weekend is a time for us to sit down and say, man, what, what is competing for my affections? Adultery. Now he gets to sexual immorality. Um, obviously, pornography is huge. Uh, it's the pornification of America. Um, we are wrestling with this at a very deep level, at a national level. Uh, addiction rates among women are, is virtually catching men. The pornography is not a male addiction. It is a female male addiction. Um, uh, and again, guys, uh, listen, Satan didn't cr create technology, but he knows how to use it. So if you have a smartphone, if you have a computer, and you don't have any safety device on it, I, I have what they call covenant eyes. Anybody here covenant eyes? Okay, covenant eyes. Uh, John Lundy, a theology professor at Biola, he knows everywhere I go, on the internet. He gets a printout. Noreen knows that, and it just buttresses trust. And my dad was addicted to pornography, struggled with it his entire life. So I would not have a computer or a cell phone without covenant eyes attached to it. And we just have to, remember what Paul will say, know the schemes of the devil. Know what those schemes are. And I think we just need to be clear. And again, Facebook, there's a whole phenomenon called Facebook affairs. Facebook affairs, which means you're with your spouse 24-7. You see all the weaknesses. My goodness, do not write a book on marriage. Why? Your wife reads it. <laughs> and she's like, we do chapter 10? Yeah, broad strokes, we do chapter 10. Philosophically, we do chapter 10, right? Oh my goodness, right? So you go on Facebook, you get a sanitized version of that person. 
sanitized. And it's like, man, what am I doing with this person when I'm looking at that person and they are just awesome, right? We call that Facebook affairs. We have to be very careful and fight the fight of protecting our marriages in a pornographic uh, culture. Next, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Man, we're not content. Americans are not content. We've been taught not to be content, right? Remember this game? I played this game once. Next slide. Uh, this game, oh, I, I'm sorry. Love of money is the root of all evil. What a bold statement. What a bold statement to one of the most uh, affluent countries in the world. What an interesting message to give to us. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. Money can be used for great good. John, the great traveling preacher John Wesley, who copyrighted his hymns, was wealthy and used his money for great extent. Remember what Jesus says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Most Americans would say, no, 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 no. When you look at what I possess, that gives me status. And that's how I judge myself. Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Right? Your life is so much more than that. So remember this game we used to play? Next slide. It was called Bigger and Better. Did you ever play this game? We played it with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, I give you a paper clip. You walk up to a house. You knock on the door. The person opens the door. You say, hey, I've got a paper clip. Can you give me something bigger or better? And they can say, oh, I don't know. I, um, here, take a highlighter. Oh, that's awesome. It's bigger and better. Then you go to each house, and you literally say to them, can you give me something bigger or better than this lunch pail? that they gave the, the team that won brought in a car that no longer ran, but they pushed in a car, to which the organizers of crew said, don't ever do that again. What are we gonna do with the car? That's America. Bigger and better is how we judge ourselves. You get a starter home. Implication being, we're gonna get a bigger home. Right, bigger and better, bigger and better, bigger and better, and that is the American dream. We've reduced it to literally status symbols, and God is saying, I want you to be content. I want you to be content. Right? Nothing wrong with being ambitious. Nothing wrong with spending money for, for nice things. Don't let that define who you are. God ought to be able to say to us, are you content right now? Or do you always, man, I am all, I'm not even looking at my wife right now. I've always got an eye on something else. Oh, I need to do this. I need to get that degree. I need to do this. I need to, always doing that kind of stuff. Right? And God is saying, but are you ever just content with where you are at this stage of life? Uh, next. Uh, so what's the secret to contentment? The writer of Hebrews' answer is, is God enough? Is God interesting? Right? What does Paul say to the church of Rome? Church of Rome, persecution's coming. I'm telling you right now, Nero's persecution is coming. So he says a really odd thing. Even though we're being like sheep led to slaughter, we are more than conquerors. And you're like, excuse me? We're like sheep being led to slaughter? Yeah, but you're also more than conquerors, right? We need to live in light of eternity. This is not our home. This is a really dysfunctional planet. And that dysfunction has crept in everywhere. This is not our primary home. Our primary home is to be reunited with Jesus in God's kingdom that will be filled with his peace. So is God enough in the moment? Uh, next. And they remember your leaders. I love this. Remember those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The secret to happiness, if you were asked psychologists, is gratitude. 
Right? And again, it's so interesting that non-Christian psychologists and Christian psychologists totally agree on this. Gratitude. This is what the writer, I think, is saying. Be grateful to your leaders. Like, I, I got to tell you, um, I do consulting. Leadership is terrible, especially during a pandemic. Uh, Christianity Today just did an anonymous survey. 80% of pastors in America today would quit their job if they were able to. That's how bad it is. So we need to go up to our leaders and just say thank you. Hume does not just happen. It's a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and work, and sacrifice, and it is so good to walk up to your leaders and just say, listen, I know life's hard, and I know people complain, I complain, but thank you for what you do. So here's my favorite uh, picture real quick as we wrap up. I became a Christian through karate. Never went to church, um, and one day my brother Bob came home from Henry for the second high school, and he said, oh, we were to love, we had a school assembly today, we had a karate guy, and he, he did all these demonstrations. He wasn't allowed to share the gospel. This was a secular high school. And I was like, dog, go on it. He said, well, he's gonna be at a church. He's gonna be doing stuff at a church. It didn't bother me he was gonna be at a church. So I go to this karate demonstration. He chops a watermelon off a guy's stomach with a samurai sword. He breaks bricks. And then he preached hellfire and brimstone. Oh my gosh, I'd never heard any of this. I'm sitting in the front row with my karate friends, all non-Christians, and he goes, um, if you die tonight driving home and you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. You want to know what hell's like? Turn on the stove, put your hand over that flame, that's your entire body forever. I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what? And then he said, but you can go to heaven. Come forward. I was like, there's no way I'm going forward. A deacon walked up to me, leaned over and said, if you're scared, I'll go with you. So I did. I literally got up in front of my non-Christian friends. I say this to my Bible students. The last words I heard before meeting Jesus was one of my non-Christian karate friends going, no blankety blank way in front of everybody. So you know what happened? I was speaking at a Family Life conference. I talked about Michael Crane. His ministry is called Michael Crane's Friday for Christ. A guy walks up to me and says, I know Michael Crane. I go, oh my goodness, you do. Do you have his contact information? Yes. I got a chance to call Michael Crane. Say, I know you don't often get the rest of the story. I'm a professor at a Christian university. Uh, my wife and I speak at marriage conferences, and I've written books. Can I have my publisher send you all my books? And he said, yeah. So, oh my gosh, right? We need to do that. Walk up to people and say, I'm really thankful for you. Psychologists say it's derivative. It'll literally make you feel the pleasure of thanking somebody else. Next. Okay, so where does motivation come from to resolve conflict? That's hard, right? It's not easy resolving conflict. Self-sacrifice, I hate that. I hate opening the dishwasher and seeing it's clean. Doggone it! Now I've seen it! And Jesus knows I've seen it. Doggone it! Unconditional love. Not conditional love. Welcome to America. America's contract. We signed a contract that day. 50-50. You do your part, I'll do my part. But if you do not do your part, I'm not doing my part. I'm not getting walked on in this marriage. No way. God says, no, no, no. Unconditional love. 
to the extent that Jesus loved you, give that love to your spouse. Now, many of you might be thinking right now, my spouse doesn't deserve it. They don't deserve it. Well, I think Jesus would say, but did you deserve it at Calvary? Did you deserve it? If you, you take that, now we're picking up. I think there were four claps. Okay, you take that love and you give it to your spouse. I mean, Paul even goes so far as to say, think of your enemy. I want you to think of your enemy right now. When they're hungry, what do you do? Feed them. Thirsty, give them something to drink. This is radical Christianity. And I think some of us have slipped into the American mindset, which is, we got a contract going here. No, no, you have a covenant going here. Right? And God fulfills his covenant. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying, uh, I, need, I just need to be careful, because I'm not saying there isn't any reason to separate. I, I, seek, I teach self-defense at domestic violence shelters in Orange County. Verbal, I, I went on and got my black belt. Listen, God's not saying stay in an abusive marriage. You're not anybody's punching bag, verbal, physical, or emotional. You separate and get help, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying you're in this, right, and there aren't any, I mean, we have to be honest with what Paul said. We have to be honest with what Jesus said. There are very limited reasons to get out of a Christian marriage. Most of it is God says, no, 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 I don't stop loving the world. You don't stop loving your spouse because you'll ruin the metaphor, right? Next. So then let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Maybe, oh, oh, thank you so much. So God's common grace. If you don't know of anything to thank God for, God's common, I just, I wrote a book. My newest book is called Eyes to See, Discovering God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. College students today are giving up on God in record numbers. Young evangelicals are walking away from God in record numbers. Pew Research, for every one person who converts to Christianity, four deconvert. Four leave. Why? Because the world is crazy. I mean, we're, we're in a pandemic. Ukraine's been invaded. Um, the economy, we're headed towards a recession. Uh, Americans don't like each other, there's contempt, natural disasters, mass shootings, and young Christians are saying, and you tell me God's loving and powerful? What's he doing for the world today? And they're walking away in record numbers, that's why I wrote this book. God's common grace means the things that we take for granted. No, no, they're all gifts. I get migraines right? Uh, have I prayed to be released from migraines? 100%. God, that has not happened. But he's given me migraine medication. I had to take some today, right? That windy road, we went, we went the back way. Oh my gosh, we were praying for the Lord to return. It was like, because then they won't need a speaker, right? You know what I mean? So I got a migraine, it, it, right? And I took Maxon. Guess what? It worked. Praise God for that. Every good gift, James says, come from God. Make a list this weekend of all the good gifts you have. And don't take them for granted, right? Um, next. Okay, I want to stop. I'm going to close with a Tom Cruise video, uh, Joe in the Volcano. He's out in the middle of nowhere on a raft, and suddenly he sees the sunrise. What's that? Oh, yeah, who did I say? Cruise, sorry. Tom Hanks. Uh, thank you, but don't ever correct the lecturer. All right, so, <laughs> and on a test, it's whoever I say. That's the beauty of being a teacher. On a test, I think it was Hanks. No, it's Cruz. You got three wrong. All right, here we go. 
Uh, this is, he sees the sunrise and appreciates it, and then he says a really interesting thing I want you to remember this weekend. Go. Hey, so let me suggest this this weekend as we're taking that walk around the lake. Stop and say, I forgot how great Hume is. I just forgot how awesome it is to be here. I forgot how great you are in this marriage. And I probably don't say that enough. I, I forgot how great it is that I'm a child of God and all my sins have been forgiven. I forgot that God is at work today. And I forgot to thank him for the things I often take for granted. I forgot to thank the servers at dinner for doing what they did. I forgot to tell my kids how awesome they are, even though they drive me crazy. I forgot what a cool thing marriage is with all of its problems. This weekend, let's remember and purposely thank God and each other for the things that we often take for granted. And listen, Noreen and I are at the top of the list, taking things for granted. So let me pray for us. Father, we come before you. We thank you that we were created to worship. We don't take that lightly. What a privilege. Thank you that we worship by caring for strangers. Thank you that we worship by being content. Thank you that we worship by using money, not being used by money. Thank you for the, every marriage in this room. Thank you for the leadership of Hume. Thank you that our worship means something to you. A God that is so big and yet knows our voice and delights in us. I pray that this would be a weekend that we would stop and pause and that your spirit would bring to mind the good things about the marriage, not ignoring the bad or the hard, but that we would remember why we fell in love and that we would remember what marriage is at its core and that is a form of worship. So Father, we give this to you. We pray for this whole weekend that you would speak to us through seminars, these talks, through coaching, through worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.